0: We're in the book of Micah. Kind of an unusual book. Going through chapter 5 tonight. Chapter 5 of the book of Micah. (coughs) And these are not easy passages to grasp. It's very different from most of the bible some of the bible a lot of the beginning of it and then in the new testament are stories of people's lives and we read them with the idea of finding a little secret uh, finding something about them that helps us to grasp it and those are easier to read Uh, some of The Bible is explanation of spiritual ideas. The New Testament, Paul's writings as he explains the things that we need to believe and we can follow those in logical order and and grasp what they say. Some of the Bible is just plain praise and worship. Book of Psalms, just thank you God and uh, praise to God. And uh, so some of the Bible reads easier than others. When we come to prophecy, we're in a hard place. This is the most difficult parts of the Bible. And you have to uh, consider that these fellows lived in a certain time period. And what they were seeing in front of their eyes Uh, God was telling them, you know, this is wrong. You need to tell them this. You need to tell them that. And then every once in a while they'd get a glimpse. And we talked last week about those mountain peaks as they looked up into the future and they'd see along the top. These are major events that are going to happen. But they didn't know how far apart they were. And so it's a little hard sometimes to tell which mountain are you looking at? And you're looking at the one that's right next to you, which for Micah would be the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, That would be the major event that was coming in his immediate future. And the only reason it hadn't happened yet, because people like Micah got a hold of a king like Hezekiah and said, you better straighten your act out. And they did And so it extended the life of the Southern Kingdom, the Northern Kingdom long before uh, the fall of Jerusalem, the Northern Kingdom fell and was no more. And so is that what he's looking at, the thing that's closest to him? Or is he looking off to when uh, Jerusalem is rebuilt and that's a time 70 years after the fall Of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is rebuilt. And sometimes he's looking and he sees that, and then he looks way ahead to the time of Jesus when Jesus was on earth, and he sees those things. And so, as we're as he's viewing the peaks, looking across and seeing what's coming, uh, he's trying to explain the best he can in the framework of where the time that he lives in. He lives in a time where where the people of Jerusalem, and you remember the first three chapters, they had treated people poorly. Matter of fact, terribly they treated people. They cheated the people out of their property. He said, you ate them up like you were eating them for dinner. You did terrible things. And so, because you did that, uh, you have to pay a price. And so when he comes to chapter 5, he's looking across again, and he's seeing these pictures in his mind. I wish you could talk to him. It would help if we could talk to him. Say, what did you see? What did you see? What, what, what was in your? Tell us what you saw. And he's actually doing that. In Chapter 5, he's telling us what he saw. It's our job to figure out what he's talking about. <laughs> and it's not easy. This is not easy. These are difficult passages. and You've got to try to figure out what he's talking about. And he looks ahead, and I see this, and I see that, and I see this. And we scratch our heads, and I think we can put it together, because we're looking back. We have the ability to look back in history, say, okay, this happened, that happened, this happened, and try to take his forward look into the future and tie it to the present. Now, it's not an easy thing to do because, in his mind, he views Israel as a failing nation. All right, so when he's thinking about my people Israel, he's thinking, What a mess! I live in this time where everything's a mess. Does that sound familiar to us a little bit? Sometimes we say that about times we live, you know, boy, what a mess we live in. All right, and and, uh, so he's looking at the time period he's living in, and he says, Israel is a failure, and they're about to pay for their failure, and yet. Though he's living in that, he's looking ahead to something better, and he keeps seeing something better. So we're going to take up chapter 5 and see what he sees. And I do think that one of the things that happens here, which makes it maybe even harder, is that uh, he sees the present. This is what's happening now. And that's what he told us in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. You people worshipped idols in chapter 1. You cheated the, the regular people and stole their property in chapter 2. In chapter 3, you treated people like dirt. And you really did. And as a result of that, you're paying a price. And so he's, that's where he's living and seeing that. He sees the present and then he gets a picture, and I guess I can't think of any better way to say than he sees a picture. Looks up, he sees something happen. Uh, it's not explained to him sometimes. I just, this is what I see. And it's pretty hard for us to try and figure it out. But we'll do our best. So back chapter 5. We did a couple of verses, but we're going to go back and do them again in the view of his present and his uh, future that he's talking about. And what he says, chapter 4, verse 12, he says, But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel. And so he's very clear that the people don't understand what God is thinking. And he's getting little visions in the future. This is what God's thinking. This is what God's thinking. And he says it's quite different than what, what they think. So uh, this I would say chapter 5 is very much what God is thinking about he's explaining to us as he gets a little picture into the future so here we go chapter 5 verse 1 now gather thyself in troops o daughter of troops he hath laid siege against us they shall smite the judge of israel with a rod upon the cheek now in his time if you remember back in chapter 3 in verse number 9 it says hear this i pray you ye heads of the house of jacob princes of the house of Israel that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquities. The heads thereof judge for reward. So what he's saying is You people who were responsible to act as judges. That is to say this is wrong and this is right. You didn't do it. And you perverted judgment he says. But when I look into this picture God's showing me. I see a judge hit in the face. I see him hit in the face. Now in his mind I'm sure. He's thinking about these guys who said, if you want, uh, uh, if you go to court just pay me money and I'll see that you come out alright. That's what they were saying. He said, you do it for money. and You'll pervert judgment or that is, you'll say this we don't care about justice. As long as I get a little money I'll give you whatever verdict you want. All right? And so He's talking about those people being hit. They need to be hit and knocked down. And they're going to be hit and knocked down. But when he looks, he sees in the future a judge being struck. And he sees a judge. And of course the judge is Jesus. He's struck with a rod on the cheek. Or Jesus was beat. He got beat pretty good before he ever was crucified. They beat him in uh, Annas's house when they took him in there to question him. Uh, and they turned their back and the servants beat him up, punched him, pulled his hair out of his face, punched him in the face. And so he's looking ahead and he sees something's not right. I see something not right. Now, in my time, he says, I know the judges did wrong. But I look ahead, and I see something is wrong up there. They're hitting a judge, and this is a good judge. They're hitting a judge. And so, the evil that he sees in his day, he looks forward, and he says, yeah, it's still not right. It's still not right. And we know that uh, who perverted judgment Ultimate perverter of judgment was Caiaphas. Caiaphas. He called in Jesus on trial and he says, Are you the Son of God? And he said, Yes, I am. And he tears his clothes and says, Crucify him. Crucify him. And uh, Caiaphas, and of course, Pilate, Pilate says, uh, I find nothing wrong in him. He's done nothing wrong, but go ahead and crucify him. Ultimate perversion of justice is I, he did nothing wrong. He needs to be released. But go ahead, and kill him. It's all right. The perversion of justice. And so the perversion of justice in his day, Micah's day, looks forward and sees it coming when Jesus is there on earth. And so he sees the judge in the picture we talked about it last week in Matthew how it says they struck him in the face. All right? Verse 2. But thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, as to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been of old from everlasting. And so, now he gets a picture and he's looking around, if you will, uh, Israel. And, of course, Jerusalem is where he's normally looking at Jerusalem, what's going on there. But there's other cities, and he can see uh, Jericho and this one and that one, and he looks at the cities, and as his eyes are sweeping by, he sees Bethlehem, Ephratah, all right? Now, Bethlehem means, Beth means house, and Lehem. Is uh, bread, and so Bethlehem is the house of bread. So that's what Bethlehem means. Ephratah, which we uh, don't use it, right? and we always just say Bethlehem. They called it Bethlehem Ephratah because there was another Bethlehem somewhere else, and so this makes the people know exactly what it is. Ephratah means fruitful. And so, the city of Bethlehem was so insignificant that they didn't consider it a city. If you were to ask people, where are the major cities? Nobody ever said Bethlehem. And only one thing in the history of Bethlehem that had ever amounted to anything was the home of David. David came from Bethlehem. Of course, he's a shepherd. And Bethlehem has always been the place of bread, the place where food is supplied. And what do they supply? Sheep. It was famous for shepherding and sheep. It was set up kind of perfectly for that. And so when you say, is there a city anywhere nearby? Well, no, no, it's nothing. Well, Bethlehem, but that's nothing. Nobody cares about it. All right? So when Jesus comes to Bethlehem, Bethlehem didn't do anything for him. All right. <laughs> didn't say, well, he was born in Bethlehem. Look where I was born. But, you know, nobody would care. Nobody would say anything about that. All right. So he is born in Bethlehem for God to show that he will take nothing and make something of it. And Bethlehem the most famous most famous city besides Jerusalem in all of Israel is Bethlehem. Why? Because Jesus made it famous being born there. And so, this house of bread, and that was the idea. He was born into the house of bread, and it would be a fruitful experience. Right? We're going to come to that as we go on. All right. So, uh, verse 3, therefore, will he give them up till the time that she has travaileth has brought forth. And the remnant of his brother shall return unto the children of Israel. In his day, all right, he's talking about, he's looking here at the fall of Jerusalem. Babylon comes and lays seeds to Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar, and he's there four times, and he takes whatever he wants three times, He wants good people for his government, so he chooses the best people for his government, and a couple of other things he wants. He takes what he wants, and then in the end, he just smashes the place into a million pieces, and everybody goes captive. And he says, so he will give up them till the time as she travaileth hath brought forth. And so the people are in captivity for 70 years, and it's a suffering situation. But he says it's not just pain. You're uh, travail. Or, uh, you're like a woman bringing forth a child in pain. So he says as the people have been put into Babylon they're there to suffer. But not just to be in pain but to bring out Something and what they're going to bring forth is the nation, the remnant, going to return to the children of Israel, and that's when uh, the Babylon captivity is over after 70 years. King Cyrus of Persia says, "Go back and rebuild Jerusalem," which is a major event in history. So he says that's going to happen. What you're going to, the suffering you're doing in there, is going to end up in a new country, but. Maybe he's not talking about that. Maybe he is. What's he talking about? Well, let's put it this way. He will give them up until the time she which travaileth has brought forth. Who else travailed? Mary. Right? Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem. And Mary travails. She gives birth to a son. And I think that, uh, as he's looking into the future, he sees a birth, a rebirth. He sees the nation coming back. Yeah, okay, that's going to happen. Then he says, "Wait a minute. Wait, look, look up there on the other mountain. There is a baby being born, and that baby is a pretty important thing. So, that's what." the Bible says, uh, she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and lied him in a manger. And so I think in his time, he would look forward to that, but he looks forward farther to the one that's born. And I think that's what he's really talking about. He says, I can compare it to what I've seen, but I see a baby born He's not just any baby. Verse number 4. He shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, and they shall abide. And now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. Jesus Christ came uh, left the borders of Israel, what, two times? If we look at the text, he crossed over Israel's border two times. The rest of the time he stayed in, in the north in Galilee, went down to Jerusalem, but he was only in Israel. He only left the country twice, and that was just to cross the border for a vacation and back. And that's the only reason he left. But his name is heard where? All over the earth. They know about him all over the earth. People everywhere know about Jesus and what he did. And he says he's going to stand and feed. And so this baby that's born, I look ahead and I see him feeding as a leader. He's feeding. He came from what? The house of bread. And now he says, I see him feeding. The flock. He's feeding. It's his job is to feed. And if you understand Jesus at all, his entire ministry was feeding, 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 feeding. He'll teach you, give you more, give you more and more, help you to understand more and more. He's constantly feeding people. And there's lots of things in that ministry that happens. Look what he does. Uh, feeds 5,000. Why did he do that? Just because he could? No, he's trying to teach us some things. And what's he teaching us? I can feed 5,000 people and I can do it all by myself. Okay? So he's the ultimate feeder of our souls. Jesus comes to feed our souls. Why did he feed 5,000 and then 4,000 he's showing. And he said, what do you guys got to feed? We got nothing. Well, how much money you got? You got enough, enough money. Take all our money we can't feed 5,000 people. Have them sit down. I'll do it. And he feeds them, all of them. And then more than that, very important point, what? There's leftovers. All right? There's leftovers. You eat leftovers at your house? Every day, you eat leftovers, right? It's leftovers. just not, Jesus had leftovers and he said make sure you collect it all and let anything go to waste. Why? Because he can feed you more than you can take in and every bit extra is extremely valuable. So Jesus can feed your soul and as we sing in the song bread of heaven, bread of heaven what? Feed me till I want no more. Give me Lord. Let me take it in. Feed me. And, and Micah says, I see him up there feeding people. He just keeps feeding and feeding and feeding people from the house of bread. He's born through the travail of a woman, someone who will feed and feed and feed. And he'll feed you as long as you'll eat. He'll feed you because there's always more. You never get done with it. I've heard preachers say, well, I've preached the whole Bible, i got to go to another church. I hope not, because they'll, they'll inflict themselves on somebody else. Uh, you know, I've been preaching for 34 years, whatever it is, and uh, I haven't preached the whole Bible yet. And I haven't repeated myself often, sometimes, You say things over, but uh, it's just you keep going and going and going, and Jesus keeps feeding and feeding and feeding and feeding. And that's obviously his mission, one of his missions. He came to save us from sin. That's his primary mission. But as a leader, uh, when he arrived on earth, He was feeding people. And you just go through and read story after story. And he makes up a story, tells you about uh, here's what the unjust judge did, here's what the prodigal son did, Uh, here's what a sower who sowed seed did. And he's constantly filling us with information, helping us to grow. So his is a tremendously powerful ministry whereby he feeds them. And because he filled those men with his information, they took it out. What did he tell them? Going into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And so the gospel has been preached over most all the world. The name of Jesus has gone out, just like he said he saw. Verse 5, And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrians shall come into our land. He shall tread in our palaces, then we shall rise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. Right, so this feeder of our souls is also here to give us peace. We're going to have peace that comes from Jesus. I don't know about you, but I love peace. I love peace. I love it in my home. I love peace in my home. I love peace in the church. Right? Isn't it nice to sit down at night and just be, at peace. And what did Jesus say? Peace, I leave with you my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. And then he called it this, there's a peace that passes all understanding. And I can remember smiling and laughing and I just came out of a meeting where a lot of bad things happen. My wife said, I think you're crazy. I said, no, I'm at peace. I'm at peace. I feel peace and it feels good. It's wonderful to have peace. And so Jesus comes to give us that and he tells us over and over again through the scriptures, peace. I want to give you peace. You love it. You want it in your own heart. So, the stresses are gone. You want it in your home. So, the the struggle that happens sometimes in the home is gone. We want peace. You love it. And he says, he's going to bring it. This man shall be the peace. What? When the Assyrians shall come into our land, and when he shall tread in our palaces. Or in other words, sometimes things don't go well. Now, in those days, uh, in in Micah's day, uh, the Assyrians had been uh, terrible neighbors to the north. The Assyrians were violent people. I told you that when they took over a city, they cut off everybody's head and throw it out by the gate. And there'd be a pile of heads by the gate when the Assyrians came. These are violent people, very violent people. And they come in, they smash Syria... Uh, to pieces, or uh, the northern kingdom, they smashed that to pieces, Samaria. And then they came to take over Jerusalem. And I told you that the armies of Sennacherib, was Assyrian. the uh, Assyrians, 185,000 died overnight. And that was where God came in and stopped the Assyrians. Right? He says, the Assyrians come in, it's not peaceful when they come, it's violent terrible when they come he says and and they come into our home right into our palaces and then he says this and we shall raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men nobody knows what that means so of course they took guesses everybody take a guess nowhere in history can we find seven princes and eight principal men What's he talking about? When he says, the man of peace comes, give us peace, and then a very violent crew comes in, but we raise against them seven shepherds and eight principal men. What does he mean? We can't find it in history. We don't know that there was ever anything in history. The guess is, and my guess would be this, it's like when when somebody says to you have you got any wrenches i got 2 3 right you say that yeah i, I got 3 4 i got i got a, i got a few you know i got i got some and so in this man who's giving us peace he says when trouble comes and big trouble comes we raise up seven shepherds and eight principal Men. So how many you got? Well, I got seven or eight. <laughs> I think that's what he's saying. We got seven or eight. Got about seven or eight. What does he mean? He means there's not a lot, but they're there. Now what's he talking about? Well, the shepherds of the flock are the ministers and the teachers that God has brought. To be in his church. And I think what he's saying is. That God is going to give us peace. And you're going to find trouble in the world. And what we have done. He says what God has done. Is he's set ministers. And they are a minority. They are a minority. But he says I sent these ministers. And they're there uh, to stand up against that what what's our job as a minister job as a minister is to show what's right and say no no that's wrong and to stand up and be that person who stands against the flood that comes in in our day we have floods come in like uh, abortion and it amazes me it just Stuns me when I hear some commercial for somebody that's running for office say, I'm here to make sure you can have an abortion. I think to myself, oh my goodness, why are you saying that? Well, we're here to stand up and say, here's what's right and here's what's wrong and that's wrong. And so he's saying there are people who uh, have been fed by the Lord, and he's going to, then their job is to feed the flock, they're shepherds, their job is to feed the flock, and so that we can have peace from the man of peace when the world is full of trouble. And so ministers have always been a minority, if you look at the history uh, right from the beginning. He started out with 12, right, 12 disciples. One of them was... Judas. So he ended up with 11. And uh, they went out to preach. And uh, they trained other men and they went out to preach. And there was always a minority. You look in the book of Acts. There's 12 guys preaching. Those uh, apostles are preaching. And they get 5,000 people saved the first day. They're a serious minority. And still ministers are that he said, Well, there's a lot of ministers around. Well, I don't know if they're all called. I think if you go and sit in their church and starve, then they're not called. Okay? There's plenty of churches where you can go and sit and just starve. And obviously, they're not being fed. And so I don't think they're considered in this seven or eight. All right. But there are plenty of good men out there who are feeding flocks. And that's the ones I believe he's talking about. So he looks ahead and he sees there are people who are going to stand up for what's right no matter what happens. Verse 6. They shall waste the land of Assyria with a sword and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh to our land and he treadeth within our borders. There were two places. Uh, Assyria was one and of course Babylon was the other one. And there they are. They're play principal roles in history as destructive forces that God used to discipline his people. And they were pretty powerful forces. Assyria, I've just told you about them. and Of course, Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar just ruled the whole world. And uh, uh, they really disciplined God's people and brought pain and suffering to them. And then God said, I used them to do that. But because they did that, I'll get rid of them. And Babylon is the most amazing one. I mean, Babylon was a magnificent city. The walls are 300 feet high. This steeple is like 95 to the top. They built walls around Babylon three times higher than our steeple. So wide, they could run chariots along the top. It's not just a little wall. <laughs> it's a massive thing. The, the, the river runs under the, the wall through the city. They got uh, uh, 70, 80 acres, I think it was, of tillable acreage, all covered in Babylon. It was a place, and towers were 100 feet higher. And I don't know how many towers, there was 20 or 30 towers around. Who's ever going to get in there? You'd have to wait till they invented the airplane to get in Babylon. (laughs) Literally, there's no way to get in. But Cyrus is outside the wall, and he digs a ditch and and changes the flow of the river uh, from under the wall, and he marches his army under the wall and takes it without firing a shot. And when they're done, and the Bible says it, you'll see Babylon It will be a home for owls. There's nothing left. The whole place is gone. You can't go there and excavate and find things. There's nothing left because it turned into a wildlife sanctuary. After a few years, they were using it for hunting. And eventually it was abandoned entirely. And so here's this massive city. You think it's going to last forever. And uh, 100 years later, it's it's just a desert. It's all gone. Because God said, I'll take care of you. I'll destroy. You may be destroyers. You may destroy and rule the world. But I'm going to put you down where you belong. And uh, you're going to. Waste the land, verse 6. It said to waste the land of Syria with the sword, the land of Nimrod, in the entrances thereof, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land, when he treadeth within our borders. And so uh, these powerful forces that were so destructive were laid ruin as God allowed that to happen. And when we look into the future, what's the powerful forces laid here? Satan. Satan and his forces, the forces of darkness. What does it say? We wrestle not against what? Flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of wickedness in high places. And uh, in in Colossians, it says, uh, Jesus on his cross destroyed principalities and powers and made a show of it openly, triumphing over them in his cross. That is, when he got on that cross, you thought he's just laying, hanging there, nothing's going on. When he left that body, he tore the place apart. And it says he literally took principalities, or spiritually dark powers, and put them on display. And the word that's used there is like if you shot a woodchuck and you hung him on a fence. There are the rest of you woodchucks. Look at that. Well, Jesus did that with the powers of darkness. He went in and destroyed them, hung them up, and said, there, that's what happens to you guys. And so he wrecked havoc in the spiritual kingdom. So much so that when he entered into hell, which everybody says, well that's the domain of evil, not when he got through with it. What did he say? I'll take the keys. He took the keys of hell. And it says that he holds the keys of hell in his hand. And he took it over and he Went out the side of it and smashed the place. Well just like the greatest powers in the world. Babylon and Assyria got destroyed and left with nothing. Jesus Christ came and destroyed Satan and his powers. What a good thing for us to know. What a good thing for us to know. Because you try it by yourself. (laughs) See how far you get. See how far you get. But he's done it for us. All right, let's go on. Verse 7. The remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of men. The remnant of Jacob. There was a remnant of people, a group of people. He said, they are a remnant. And he said, those people be a small Group, but those people are gonna have a function, and what they are gonna be is do. You're you're do. You're all do. <laughs> Feel dewy, do you? We're all do. What does that mean? That means that out in the world, out there, in the grass and the trees and all that. Uh, You can have a violent storm, we just saw one, right? And it really wrecked everything, made a mess. But God's way, best way, is to water the earth with a dew. Well, How does it get there? Quietly. Very gently. Even the tiniest little blade of grass can be covered with dew and never even bend it over. He says this is what God's people are going to be to the rest of the world. They're going to come quietly in, and they're going to behave and talk about Jesus and live like they should for Jesus, and it's going to become due. It's going to bring life, and it's going to bring health, and it's not going to hurt people. That's why we are wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Because we're like dew. We're meant to go out and quietly help and quietly water and quietly bring grace and strength to the world around us. And so God's people, he says, are like a dew from the Lord as showers on the grass. Doesn't wait for man or the sons of men. Has nothing to do. Doesn't say, uh, Mr. Biden, can we rain now? Doesn't say that. It does what it needs to do. doesn't ask any man. All right? We're here to touch the world in that way. We're here to be uh, strength and life. A refreshing source of life. As God's people were fed by the great feeder and we are here to give that back and be like a dew to the people around us. And I suppose he must have saw uh, just a grassy field with dew on it. And God said that, look at that, learn from that, will you?" And he's looking at the dew, he says, mean we're gonna be like, yeah? You're gonna be as gentle and as refreshing as dew. That's a wonderful way to look at what we do. Verse 8. The remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people as a lion among the beasts of the forest. As a young lion among the flocks of sheep who if he go through both treadeth down, teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. Thine hand shall be lifted up on thine adversaries and all thine enemies shall be cut off. Now, as he's looking, and remember the point of view. He sees a baby born in, in Bethlehem. He grows, and he's a shepherd feeding his sheep. And he comes and brings peace to his people. And then he strikes out against Satan and destroys the enemies. And then he says, I see a remnant. Of people who believe in God and they are uh, help to the rest of the world. <clears throat> and then he says, it must have been, <gasps> I see a lion. And he's looking off into the future and God's giving him a picture. He says, I see this lion and he's coming down through and he's tearing up everything in pieces and nobody can deliver from that lion. Well, who do you think that is? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. When we were deciding what names to put on that window over there, we put two names. One on one side says the Lamb of God. The other one says the Lion of Judah. There is a gentle Jesus who brings peace to his people and then there's a lion of Judah who comes and don't mess with him. He means business. And the lion of Judah comes and steps up and becomes the leader of God's people. So the tribe of Judah had a lot of things but nobody liked that lion. Nobody liked that lion. And I like what Psalms 2 says about him It says that the people are in rebellion. And they say, we will not do what God says. And we rebel against God. And what does it say? He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Oh, yeah, you're going to rebel. You're going to have it your way. We'll see. That's the Lion of Judah. Yeah, that's not how it's going to be. He's very powerful, doing what he wants, and moving through. And he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. He's a powerful force as the Lion of Judah. All right. So he's had quite a few pictures, hasn't he? We've looked at uh, dew. We've looked at a shepherd. We've looked at the birth of a baby. We've looked at a lion. And he's seen these pictures in his mind as God's showing him this and that. And he's trying to explain it to the best of his ability. Now we come to verse 10. It should come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses of the midst of thee and destroy thy chariots. And so, we've got to make a list here because he's going to go through a list and try to Say, here's what I'm going to do. Right? I'm going to just take away your horses and chariots. And so if you've got horses and chariots, they're gone. That's gone. And then verse 11 I will cut off thy cities from thy land and throw down thy strongholds. And so the strongholds are the um, fortresses that you have. Fortresses, you've got fortresses. I'm going to destroy your fortresses. Verse 12. I will cut off all witchcrafts out of thine hand, and thou shalt have no more soothsayers. All right, so you have people that you go to for advice. Witches and soothsayers. These are the people that you've been going to for advice. we will going to get rid of all of them. Verse 13. Thy graven images also will I cut off. Thy standing images out of the midst of thee, thou shalt no more worship the work of thine own hand. And so, any kind of idol that you had is gonna be gone. That was your own uh, making, you did this yourself. You made an idol, it was your idea to make it up, and that's what you're gonna do. There's 14. I will pluck up the groves out of the midst of thee so I will destroy thy cities. And he says it twice he's going to destroy the cities the groves of course had to do with idols there was a place where they worshipped idols and then he says your cities that's where you gather as a group you gather as a group in a city you join together You join together and gather the group. 15, I will execute vengeance and anger and fury on the heathen such as they have not heard. He says, "We're going to take care of business. This is what I'm going to do. Now this lion of the tribe of Judah, the man of peace, the teacher, all these things. He says, here's what I'm taking away from you. First of all, horses and chariots. What do you do with them? Well, you've got a lot of confidence. Because if you get in a horse and a chariot and you're riding against a guy standing there with a sword, <laughs> we just go over the top of him. So the more horses and chariots we get, the more successful we are in battle. You know, I'm going to take away those. Why? Because you trust those. You put your confidence in those horses and chariots. And that's why the children of Israel never had horses and chariots when all the other places had them. All the invading armies that came, you look in the book of Judges, what do they got? Horses and chariots. Everybody had horses and chariots except for the Israelites. Why? Because God said, I don't want you to have any. Until Solomon. Solomon brings horses and chariots into the land. All right? Until then, they weren't. God said, you don't need them. You'll win without them, and they did. There's amazing stories about some of these armies that came with all kinds of horses and chariots. And what happened? They got stuck in the mud. (laughs) What good is a horse and chariot when you're stuck in the mud? All right? And so he says, if you have confidence in this thing, I'm going to take it away. No horses and chariots for you. You also have confidence in... In your fortresses. You believe that you have a safe place. And that that safe place you can run to, no matter what happens, I just go into the fortress and I'm safe there. No more fortresses. I'm gonna take away your fortresses, all right? And he says, um, I'll cut off witchcrafts out of thine hand and soothsayers, all right? So. When they're looking for advice, they'll go anywhere, anywhere, to anybody. And in this world, I mean, you've got to watch where you get advice. It is tainted seriously in many cases. All right? And of course, you say, well, who would go and ask a witch? Well, King Saul <laughs> did. Yeah. And there's plenty of witches, right? There used to be witches that worked at Darien Lake. There were witches there. Didn't know that, huh? They used to do, in East Pembroke, they used to have a satanic uh, service in the backyard there. Cut off the head of a dog and put it in the middle and have a satanic service. Don't think it's not out there. It is out there, all right? So he said, you go to those people for advice. So we're going to get rid of all that, all right? And then you got idols, and where do they come from? You made them up in your own mind. Or you decided what God is. And that's one of the most disturbing things to me when somebody says to me, I got my opinion about God. And I've had people dying of cancer tell me, Well, I got my own thoughts about God. And I'm like, No, no. That's not the way it is. And that's what an idol is, it's your own idea. And usually when you make an idol, you make it so you control him. See, you control him. That's why they made idols, reading the book of Genesis, they kept them behind the door. Household idols, they kept them behind the door. Well, if I need him, I can always get him out, but I don't need him most of the time, he's okay behind the door. That's what they call their household idols. They stuck them behind a door. If you need them, you can get them out. People want a God. It's only there, if I need him, I'll call him. Don't you think that's not a very common idea among Christians? If I need him, I'll call him. That's the idol behind the door. Same concept. I'm going to make God be what I want him to be, and I want him to be the idol behind the door. All right? And... He says, your cities, you're going to gather together at groups and say, you know, as long as we're all together in this, we'll be okay. And he said, I'm going to get rid of your cities. So what's he doing? Everything that you set up that makes you say, I don't need God. I'll be safe because I got a horse and chariot. I'll always have a place to go because I built a fortress. I can get advice from anywhere I want. I can go wherever I want to get advice. And I find advice when I need it. And I think God will be whatever I want him to be. And then we're going to gather as groups of people in large numbers and say, yeah, well, are you all with us? Yeah, we're going to trust in our chariots. And God's not taking all that away. So you got nothing but me. That's what you got. You got me. Nothing else. Nothing else. I'm going to take it all away from you. So that you, when when trouble comes, you ain't jumping in your chair. You're saying, here I am. I need your help. Where are you going to go? For fortress? You, I look to the hills from whence comes my strength. My strength is in the Lord. You're going to trust in God. right? Not in the fortresses. You're going to forget about the advice. The teacher over here is feeding you. That's the advice you want, not what the world has to offer. And the world's advice is always flawed somewhere. It's always flawed somewhere. Even if it's only flawed because we won't mention God. That's a flaw, the big flaw as you want. All right? Uh, And uh, of course, gathering as a group makes people feel secure. There's a lot of us that think this way. We're all right. God says, Oh, that's gone. I'm going to make it so all you got is me. And you're going to be much better off when all you got to trust in is me. And so that's what Micah sees as he looks down across history. And he said, finally, God said, all you need is me. That's what God said. And after all, if he's going to feed us and give us peace, take care of our enemies, make us special among the people out in the world, that that is all we need, isn't it? That's all we need. Thank God for that. All right, chapter 5. Looking, try to look at it through uh, Micah's point of view where he is in history. But he's certainly focused ahead on Jesus Christ and who he is. And then we will come to chapter 6 next week where he answers the great question of the Bible from Thank Micah you. chapter 6. Thank you.